Welcome to today's episode of The Growth Zone. I am Christian Bartsch. What is the core benefit of listening to this show? Business leaders in corporate and privately held companies gain insights into trends and strategies that provide them with a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Each episode focuses on an area such as marketing, sales, innovation or funding that is absolutely critical to the growth of companies, whether they are startups or corporate global players, where management needs to juggle the challenges of market entry or knowing how to navigate the uncertainties of disruptive developments. Mindfeeding is where clarity evolves and helps solving organizational challenges. For those who listen to the entire episode, I have a special surprise gift. I am working on some great guests that are industry leaders in management, innovation and marketing. Let's get started on today's episode. So today I'm here with Greg from the Silicon Valley and we're going to have some interesting topics today. The main topic is, is it very difficult to build a brand via paid ads? The alternative is to build communities. Why is that? So Greg, before we get deep into our conversation, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I'm joining you from San Francisco. I am an entrepreneur that has been working in startups for something like 12, 13 years now. I took a very roundabout path to get here. I never studied computer science, but I, I grew up around computers and most of my life I had known how to program and was taking apart computers and software and figuring out how it works. Um, After deciding academia wasn't for me, I originally studied philosophy and did graduate research in philosophy. Uh, I decided to go back to computing this hobby and, and turn it into a career. And at the time, it was fairly ossified at large companies. Like You couldn't break through at large companies if you didn't have a formal degree. That culture has certainly changed since Google realized formal degrees really don't matter for whether a company... I'm sorry, whether an employee ends up being successful. So at the time, the only real places that would give me a good job where I could learn a lot on the role were startups. So I was really drawn to startups. And then I worked at a bunch of early stage startups and tried to learn everything I could from the founders. Um, I would volunteer to do things like redesign the deck so that I, I could understand how to talk to investors and how the founders were pitching them. And then eventually I branched off and, and did my own company. The first one was in the security space, and, and we developed software to identify whether a user viewing a web page or an ad is a, is a bot or a human. And then we sold that company after going through Y Combinator to uh, Integral Ad Science in 2016. Then I led up the R&D into advertising fraud one of the three product lines at Integral Ad Science for a couple years, then they were bought for almost a billion dollars by Vista Private Equity. And I, I left soon after that to, to work on my current company. 
Oh yeah, so that's uh, you've got quite a good insight into the ad space, how ads work, and all these different things. But as well, how to uh, deliver the information to the investors as well in a way that they value it correctly. Yeah, so with advertising, it's it's actually more and more challenging to build a brand, and in particular, it's more expensive to build a brand. And the the way you can think about that is that unless your company, your product has a very high lifetime value for each customer, it is uh, unlikely that you will get to ROI if you are building a brand from scratch uh, and building an audience for that brand. It's unlikely that your advertising will be uh, ROI positive. Yeah, because uh, when you think of it, so much fraud is there on the ads. I know from our ads that we used to run on, on Google, we had like 70% uh, click fraud. And yeah, we had as well uh, hired a company to to check our ads and so on. And it took quite some time for Google actually to accept that we were paying a little bit too much for what we yeah. were getting. Yeah, that's a, that that practice is called chargebacks. I, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of messed up if you ask me in the ad industry because the advertising networks like Facebook and Google have the data internally to solve the problem of advertising fraud. It's just the market incentives aren't there for them to actually care about solving the problem. They will solve the problem only to the extent that advertisers demand they solve the problem. Because frankly, until there's a PR risk and a risk of outcry from the ad agencies that control the ad spend, the, they, they are not incentivized to correct course and eliminate fraud. They'll eliminate only the amount of fraud that is so egregious that everyone would complain. But they're not going to eliminate all the fraud, which in many cases, they have a lot of the data to do so. Yeah, because it uh, as well means that they would lose out on a lot of money that they otherwise have charged you and they would have to pay back. Yes, and so as the advertiser, you're forced to basically use some kind of service that is certified that Google will accept their data and use the data from that third-party measurement service to get a charge back and get some of your money back. And... I, I mean, it's a broken system if you uh, are basically, it's like, I don't know, imagine you bought a six pack of beer and three of the beers were water and you have to file a claim through an outside agency to get the, the convenience store to give you a, a beer, <laughs> replace the water with beer. <laughs> yeah. And when you think it's every day you go and buy a six pack and every day it's three cans of water or four cans and so on. And, and each time you open it and think, ah, it's again water. It's annoying, especially when you think, hey, wait a minute. Because when you think of it, you, you have like per day a certain ad uh, budget running and what's the competition or certain other people doing with the click fraud? They want, of course, to spend all your budget as fast as possible so that when the potential clients go into the internet and are searching for this kind of service you're offering, you have no budget any left and you are not advertising, but they are, which is <laughs> not good. Mm. 
So, so the and just for anyone listening who doesn't really understand the economics of it, just to quickly summarize, uh, cyber criminals create botnets, and the main incentive to create a botnet, or the financial incentive, or way to monetize a botnet, which is just an army of computers and mobile phones and tablets that have been compromised with malware and are being remotely controlled. The number one monetization path is to view and click on ads. And there are credible publishers who unknowingly buy bot traffic all the time because they're looking to arbitrage cheap sources of traffic uh, for a lower cost than their actual revenue as a premium publisher. Mm. And this gets marketed, these services get marketed using euphemisms such as a traffic extension network or things like that, but it's usually a mix of low-quality human traffic and bot traffic that is being resold. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's when you look at it, what kind of bots there are, what kind of, um, especially the, the operating systems and so on of the bots. You notice it's a lot of Android devices and that. You, mm. you, can't, you can't actually trust the user agent. That's one thing where if you have a lot of bot traffic, you actually reading anything from the operating system and, and browser that is specified in the user agent for, for those users, that's not reliable. Most bots spoof their user agent. In fact, I developed a company where a lot of the core technology was around detecting user agent spoofing and in order to identify bots. Because you can take what the user... So just for context, anyone on the call... When you request any data on a network from your mobile phone, from your computer, from a piece of software running on your computer, usually there is a header set called user agent. This is how the client identifies itself. So right now I'm using Chrome on my Mac. It would say something like um, Mac OS X, the version number of Mac OS X, and then Chrome 86, 87, whatever the Chrome version that's running. And you can validate that with JavaScript code. You can actually validate the browser environment matches what is stated in that HTTP header. And bots will lie about their user agent because it's profitable to do so. So even if they're using Internet Explorer, there is a financial incentive to pretend to be an iPhone. Yeah, and you can do that uh, in the end as well for, on every kind of platform. You can pro even in Visual Studio, you can even do such modifications for for uh, applications that do some kind of website testing and so on. You can even modify it, right? Any any garbage into it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I found a Chinese botnet that hilariously they they did a really great job of uh, imitating a real Chrome browser, like they were just automating a real Chrome browser, mm -hmm. but they changed their user agent. There's very few traces in the JavaScript environment, but they changed their user agent to a, a misspelling of Chrome, which had Chorm instead of Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was yeah. one, one, one hilarious one I un uncovered where like they did everything right, except they couldn't spell Chrome correctly. Yeah, the, the small it's the small mistakes that uh, give them away. Yeah. <laughs> so, so going back to this sort of original premise of of how to 
build a brand without advertising, there's a few different approaches that I've seen successful. So at my current company, we built software for simplifying legal and financial compliance for startups and to make it easy to get a company uh, started, hire employees, issue equity, raise money. And to build an audience for that brand, we've done a few different approaches, but the, the biggest one is that we, we've basically become a media company. We run our own podcast. We also publish lots of articles about startup-related topics that are um, really high intent. That is that founders who are just thinking about incorporating and, or starting a company uh, will be searching those terms. And, and so now we get something like 200 unique visitors per day from search. So we don't we don't need to pay for customers because we built a media company. Absolutely, and that gives you then really good value. And Google recognizes that you are actually helping them people and not just trying to do like a, a keyword collections and keyword spamming and so on without any quality in the content. I mean, the most of the content is written by me my co-founder or our head of BD and partnerships who used to work as an associate at a venture fund. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing. Good good content needs, of course, time. It needs effort and, uh, yeah, you have to build your content plan and everything and somehow keep on it, doing it, and eventually deliver the results. The, the reason everyone is doing podcasts, by the way, is because it's a great source of backlinks to boost the domain authority of your website. So if you are doing a lot of content writing and producing media that you publish on your site, the podcast is a great hack for boosting the domain authority. Yes, that's true. Of course, there's a certain level amount how much you can do. Otherwise, eventually, there'll be a limit where Google then will no longer take it into consideration. So you have to diversify in that. I mean, obviously, you need to get people to listen to your podcast. The podcast with 20 downloads isn't really going to be prioritized. So that's you have to be able to source interesting guests from uh, your target industry. Like if you were building... I don't know, a speaker, a loudspeaker company, you could uh, interview the people who do Function One or Void sound systems um, who are experts in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like with our topics that are around business, entrepreneurship, marketing, leadership, startups, innovation, and so on. That's the thing. For instance, I just got this morning a uh, statistics that we are in... Taiwan, we are on position 72 for entrepreneurship. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I haven't even I've even got listeners in Taiwan. I wasn't aware of that, but that's great. So that's that's really interesting. Um, because when we think of it, you're now speaking from, from your perception as uh, working in San Francisco, but all these things, they apply whether you're on West Coast, East Coast, whether in Europe, Asia, India, or Africa. It's In the end, it's this same thing, different environment, but it's the same, more or less the same kind of challenges. One thing that's interesting is that you've seen a lot of uh, the democratization of a lot of knowledge around how to build software. 
in particular, if you think about growth marketing, you have Growth University, which is a friend of mine, Craig Zingerlein. He's working on that with Jason Calacanis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Demand Curve, which uh, is a bunch of former Y Combinator founders uh, and growth marketers who basically have top class uh, educational training for growth marketing. And so that's, those are just some examples. But you're seeing, I think, uh, you know, this sort of knowledge that was hoarded by accelerators and incubators by VCs to, to kind of uh, enrich their personal network and their portfolio companies. Um, you're seeing that knowledge spread far and wide so that it's, it's I think, easier than ever um, for a motivated founder to figure out how to build a company, even if, I don't know, they're in they're in Estonia or Lagos, Nigeria, or in Uzbekistan. It doesn't really matter as long as you have a fast internet connection and you're a fluent uh, English reader. Absolutely, because I've done some events where we did some presentations as well for for people who um, are starting businesses or they just started them. And we had events we had in Germany, had events in Johannesburg, and even as you said, even in Lagos, we had an event. And I remember because I was uh, taking care of the ads for that event, which was interesting. How different as well the people in different regions are, how they behave uh, towards ads, and uh, how they interact with technology as well. So it's really yeah. We we noticed the same thing when we tried to run ads for Capbase. So, I mean, we're targeting early stage founders to adopt our product, but early stage founders are very different in terms of their background knowledge about cap tables, financing, how venture financing works, and so on. Uh, it's to the point where basically getting a repeat entrepreneur from a second tier tech hub or just some random place in America or Canada, that, that person... Um, you know, even if we got a first-time founder from Silicon Valley or New York, that first-time founder from Silicon Valley in New York will have way more of a, an understanding of how startups and venture financing and fundraising work. Because yeah, the, the knowledge is evangelized within those local tech communities, and outside of those tech communities, I, I mean, it's a very different culture. And so when we're advertising... Uh, to Silicon Valley big tech hubs and more sophisticated founders, we can actually market with our features. Whereas if you are advertising outside of those big tech hubs or you're advertising to overseas founders who want to uh, incorporate their company in the U.S., in that case, you have to put a much more different framing on the ads. You can't necessarily sell features that solve pain points that these people don't know they will have. Uh, you have to sell something aspirational, like turning your startup idea into reality or, or uh, something along those lines. Yes, definitely. Because, of course, uh, different, um, different kind of knowledge base, experience, and so on. And even if they've done a business maybe in Europe already, uh, it might have been a small business, never incorporated, and they don't know how, uh, what actually they have to do because maybe totally different, they've had it small and they didn't have external money and so on. 
Yeah, in the U.S., a lot of people might have set up LLCs. This, mm-hmm. it's I forget what the equivalent is in Germany. It's the lightweight corporation that's um, like a partnership as opposed to a stock corporation. Yeah, it would be uh, GmbH, for instance, or in UK, Limited. I would say that's more or less. And I think Poland would be uh, SPZOO. Is that yeah, right? SPZO. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, it, so, so there's there's these. I, I think there's a simpler. Stru- I, I forget if there's a simpler structure than the Gambeha, or if you have the two different categories of how they're organized or taxed. In yeah. the U in the in the U.S., you have stock corporations and you have LLCs. LLCs mm-hmm. function more like partnerships. And they're taxed as the the profits are taxed as pass through income on the personal taxes of the mm-hmm. members of the LLC. By contrast, the C corporation, the corporation is taxed as a corporate entity and then pays out salary to the founders or executives in the company, and then they're taxed on their personal taxes. So, the many people view that as quote unquote double taxation. In practice, for startups, it usually doesn't matter whatsoever because they're not profitable for a long time and most of the value is being built in the equity and and uh, the profits are being reinvested to grow the business so there's not a lot of uh, what's called owners take um, left over to, to pay out and save money on personal taxes thanks to doing this so usually I, I venture back any startup that wants to raise money from us venture funds should register as a what is known as a c corporation in delaware and that is what investors want that is what they are the most familiar with and there's a lot of reasons for that unlike civil law systems common law systems precedent is legally binding so if you've had a lot of legal disputes around corporations, shareholder disputes, board disputes resolved in the Delaware courts, then that body of law is and that venue or uh, jurisdiction is more predictable in the eyes of investors. Even if another common law jurisdiction in the U.S. adopted the same laws as Delaware, there's no guarantee that those laws would be interpreted the same way. So, so that's it, Delaware is one of the first companies to make it easy for foreigners and people out of state to register their companies there. They have a devoted corporate court for dealing with corporate disputes, the Court of Chancery. And that court over the years has developed such a body of precedent that for investors, business partners, um, even lawyers, right? It's a very predictable venue um, to set up a company and and do capital financings. Yeah, and, and I know it as well from aviation as well. There are plenty of companies who have been set up in Delaware for as well for registering as well their aircraft, um, because some some people register their company their aircraft with um, companies in Florida, but Delaware is usually uh, the best way, especially if you have to insure them in different uh, countries. Because, for instance, as I just recently found out. Um, if you are insured with with your aircraft, there are certain limitations. So you can't, for instance, go with that insurance fly into Mexico. You have to have a separate insurance, but insurance that covers you for flying uh, with your aircraft to inside the U.S. to 
Canada or even to Europe doesn't cover Mexico. And I think, oh, wait a minute, Mexico isn't that busy of a Of course, there are other kind of legal problems or crime-related problems that actually uh, cause the uh, insurance companies to say, no, Mexico costs extra. <laughs> well, it's, it's like when you rent a car in the EU, yeah, and especially in Germany, they always ask you what countries you're going to go to. Mm -hmm. And if you tell them, like, oh, yeah, we're going to be going to Poland, Lithuania, we were thinking of going to Belarus. They're like, uh, yeah, you can't go to Belarus. And they're like, what, what about Ukraine? They're like, uh, no, that's separate insurance that costs like 200 euros a day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Although nowadays, nowadays things have, I think, as well quite changed because uh, I've been traveling the last, I would say, 10 years a lot as well to, to Poland. I've been flying to, to Russia as well and so on. And, and Czechoslovakia, I've been driving as well a lot. And I said that long, long time ago when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, of course, there were plenty of cars that were being stolen and taken from Germany over to, to the Eastern, Euro Eastern Europe and sold there. But nowadays, when you drive there, they, they have all the factories. When you think, for instance, the Skoda factories in Czechoslovakia, you go through Prague and, and outside of Prague and so on, and you see cars that look better and they are much nicer than the cars that you see in, in Germany. And I live in an area where you have lots of people who drive Porsche. That's in front of my home. A Lamborghini park. Some somebody parks Lamborghinis, Porsches, and so on. Uh, but in Prague and around Prague, I saw cars. They look immaculately clean and brand new. And that's something you don't really see a lot in in Germany and cities like Munich. When they think, wait a minute, these people obviously are making more money than we are. We're paying too many taxes. Maybe that's why. <laughs> there's a there's a flat tax in the Czech Republic. It's like twenty one percent. Yeah, which is good because we pay uh, on dividends, we pay like 25%. If you buy and sell shares, 25%. And then you have company tax, uh, regional tax, and so on. And and uh, depends as well where you have based your company. You have to pay different kind of levels of taxes and so on. Um, but, you know, there's this double Dutch-Irish uh, sandwich tax system and so on. That's as well, of course, something we think, wait a minute, for Europe, it's crazy. But yeah, and US, you've got Delaware, which is a good alternative. In the Generally speaking, in the US, people, it, it's like this myth among US business people that Europe is high tax. I don't, I don't actually think that's the reality. If you want to live in a state on the coast that is desirable to live in, like New York or San Francisco, mm. if you're not making money that's through capital gains and you're you're getting paid a big salary, I mean, you're going to be paying 41%, 42% effective tax rate. And I don't think your tax rate in Germany is usually more than like 45, 50. Uh, well, you have to think we, we have taxes and then we have... Um, VAT. When you VAT and you have a, well of course if you are employed you get uh, you've got social insurance that you have to pay and so on and we have to pay this uh, unification taxes and so on so in the end you could say if you were single from your uh, salary there would be about between 55 and 65 percent would be taken away so you 
have less than 45% actually reaching your bank account. And from that, you then pay your rent and your food and so on and so on. Um, but it's, it's quite a difference if you are then self-employed because even if you have a corporation or a German LLC, then um, you, you can, of course, be employed by your own company, but you still treated as a self-employed person, which means you don't have to pay unemployment insurance because you can't get unemployed <laughs> otherwise, unless, of course, your company goes bust. But yeah, it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> so you don't have to pay these taxes. Um, but for instance, there's one thing that I always find quite interesting when you look at the different countries in Europe. There are royalties, for instance, in Netherlands, if you have a company there, the the Dutch government wants to support companies to go and invest money in research. And of course, research costs money. And if you have no incentive to do that, you're not going to research in the Netherlands. So when you do rev generate revenue, let's say somebody is paying you royalties for your pharma products or for your software, whatever, those royalties are tax-free until you go and hand them out to a human being person but if you move for instance you take the money and then pay somebody else some other company or whatever or you push it over to another company for instance inside a holding or that then it's tax-free similar situation as well in, in belgium as well royalties as well similar but it always depends very much in what area you're doing so you have to look around europe and see what is really the best fit similar like yes is nevada better or is delaware better or is florida better it depends Look, for instance, who's going to Texas, like uh, Elon Musk and so on, and, and Oracle. Well, their and their companies HP. aren't switching to being registered in Del in Texas, so. No, but uh, some obviously are at least moving. Although uh, HP Enterprises, they moved to Texas. They've moved as well their headquarters to Texas. There's a difference between the company headquarters which can be anywhere in the world and the actual choice of jurisdiction where they registered. Mm -hmm. Those are those are separate questions. Yeah. The the and in the absence of having a company headquarters or office space that is being leased or owned by the company, then usually the where the company so like headquarters are is really where the principal executive office lives. It, the principal executive officer lives, mm -hmm. or where the board members live. And then that becomes somewhat more complicated, especially as you can imagine with this remote world where you have a bunch of companies registering as Delaware corporations. The founders might be in three different states. I don't live in the same state as my co-founder. We're a Silicon Valley company only because mm -hmm. I live in San Francisco. We get the, we get the boost and start in seed round valuations because we're well connected here. But I mean... We, we could never afford to actually hire uh, a team of 17 people in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley right now. Yeah, because the salaries have to be, I think, uh, what is it, at least 170,000 uh, US dollars per year. Otherwise, you can't afford uh, a one-bedroom place. Uh, it's, a, it's dropped since yeah. then. I, I wouldn't, I would say... But pre-pandemic pre pricing. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so a one bedroom was like three thousand five hundred dollars. 
Wow, that's way way beyond what I knew from London. London was was crazy when you compare to to Munich. Munich is the most expensive city in Germany, uh, but London was just crazy. I when I looked for for flats in London, I used to I you didn't have any measurements, but when I looked at them, I imagined what kind of vehicle could I put into each room, and that's how I measured how what the size of the apartment was. Can I put a motorbike in it? Can I put a mini or can I put a, a, a Land Rover or whatever? And that's how I knew how big the apartment actually was. But 3000 is quite a lot of money when you compare it. Well, it, and things have dropped maybe 30% since the pre-pandemic yeah. highs. But it, I, my girlfriend and I pay like a bit more than 4500 with everything. It's like probably around 4800 for mm. a three bedroom next to Dolores Park. It's but that's and that's considered really cheap. How how much uh, square feet would that be approximately? It's 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 around there's like a nine hundred square foot attic and fifteen hundred square feet. So for I don't I'm forget how to convert to square meters, but uh I usually divide by three. <laughs> divide uh, by three is the simplest trick. <laughs> It's it's it, about a hundred square meters is like twelve hundred square feet because it's not yards. Anyways, it's yeah. it it's not a it's not a huge place. It's not like a mansion, but it's, an, it's certainly enough for two people in their home offices and my collection of weird electronic music gear and thousands of records. By by the way, I collect a bunch of German records and i have a bunch of uh Nua deutsche Welle records oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those those uh those were the records of a time that were really uh unique in them yeah they're yeah. they're really weird um because yeah. there's these these german post-punk or new wave records from that period where it's like a very clearly this was an experiment and most of the songs on the record are a totally failed experiment, but one of the songs on the record is amazing, and you'll buy you'll you'll spend forty euros on buying a record for the one good song on it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> do you know this song? There's one song from Neue Deutsche Welle. It's called uh, I think the text goes, um, "Ich will Spaß, gib Gas." <laughs> 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 I want to have fun. Uh, let's speed. <laughs> <laughs> But when you think of it, what the speed that you can drive on German autobahns, it's, it's nothing compared to, to the slow motion in U.S. roads. <laughs> the car yeah. could jump off the road if you're uh, driving like 300 mi uh, miles per hour. That's crazy. Yeah, the, most of the roads aren't really built for that type of speed. They are in the flat states where you have big, giant highways that, that can be used for... Um, uh you know like there's no there's no there technically there is a speed limit but in practice if you're driving on a in the flat road on a straight highway through the desert or through cornfields uh you it's kind of a nice drive especially in the mountain west where it's empty i wouldn't i i mean driving in the northeast say between boston and new york is a dreadful experience and i don't wish driving down the i95 corridor on anyone and it's not even scenic or anything like that. But driving across Utah, driving across Arizona are beautiful experiences. And you can drive fast because there's no one around and it's, you know, 
the only person you would be endangering is yourself. Yeah, because I was just looking. Uh, I think the fastest I've driven, I think I drove with a Mercedes E-Class, was 280 kilometers per hour, which is 173 miles per hour, which is crazy. <laughs> I, 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 I thought I was going to die the first time I drove on the Autobahn. I, <laughs> I, I went to Poland to study uh, at the Uniwersytet Jagiellonski in Kraków. And... Mm-hmm. I, my friend had bought a Polski Fiat, the Fiat 126 made under communism, but yeah. he bought one that was modified by like Polish hillbillies for drag racing <laughs> and it had like a spoiler and lifted wheels and we and it had like a Yamaha motorbike sports bike engine inside it because it was so tiny you could just put a motorcycle engine in it. And we we drove it to uh, we drove it to Germany to go to some music festival by a lake somewhere like mm-hmm. maybe near like Dresden or Leipzig somewhere around there, and we we pretty much got when we got and then we went to Berlin afterwards. And I remember driving on the autobahn <laughs> in this car, which yes, it was capable of going fast but going like 150 kilometers 160 kilometers per hour in this modified polski fiat uh was very terrifying it just started shaking and i just kept thinking i was going to lose control of the wheel but i couldn't actually slow down because all of the cars were driving so fast on the autobahn that i was basically like getting passed by semi-trucks yeah, and that's the same thing as when we think of it. Yeah, you have to drive so fast to get quite a decent distance. And when you think of it, for instance, when you fly, uh, you just you just need like uh, ninety-two miles or so just to take off, which is like eighty knots. And then a Cessna one hundred seventy-two will just lift off, and you fly, and and uh, of course you can increase the speed to a certain level. But then you notice how how you can go a direct line and the same thing applies as well when we when you talk about growth about business how to to find a way that's maybe better instead of trying to push against something that's maybe not quite realistic like paying thousands of dollars for ads and hoping to somehow grow and by the time you maybe make a bit of a progress you're already the tank is empty and you have no gas anymore you can't really advertise anymore um yeah, that's interesting, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, so I, I'm excited, I guess, by what's been going on in startups lately, and I think there's a lot of interesting companies emerging. Most of them are not in ad tech, though, or marketing tech, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm more excited by things like biotech uh, and I think there's a lot of investment into life-changing medicine, life-saving medicines that will have happened partially triggered by the pandemic. But also there's, I think, interesting technologies in the renewable space. Um, I have a friend who has a company that he's starting in Berlin that where they're recycling solar panels and making new, better solar panels out of the silicone, recycled silicon material. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good thing because as well where where I'm involved as well in in some other startups as well as they do as well a lot with uh, solar systems in Europe. And when you think of it, countries like, for instance, like Greece, you've got lots of sun, you don't have a lot of rain and so on. And it's a perfect place to generate energy. It's just the thing, of course, you have to transport the energy to the countries who are consuming the energy instead of needing to have um, atom energy and so on. That's a good thing. But of course, you have to maintain them. And that's a challenge. But when you look, for instance, at what Elon Musk is doing with his uh, solar panels and so on, selling solar panels, selling cars, the <laughs> charge-up stations and so on, it's quite smart. He's building his ecosystem. Well, SpaceX, SpaceX is also, I think, um, connected to Earthlink mm. in that way. You can launch yeah. satellites, so you can launch satellite internet. Hmm. Exactly, and he's he's expanding as well. Uh, not only I think Europe and USA has already started his beta phase for his uh, Starlink system, and in Europe he's now as well advertising to get people to start uh, buying the the kit. The Star Starlink seems like it's interesting because with remote work, uh, a lot of places that previously I would have never considered living, I would consider living. Hmm. Like for example. If you were doing, I don't know, business in LA, or you just wanted to be within two hours of the airport, a major airport, you could live in the mountains or the desert near LA, and just by land, you don't need to have um, like a connection to a fiber optic internet. You could just use Starlink. Yeah, and that's the thing when you uh, look at all places around the world, whether you are, for instance, in Florida and some nice place and you don't have fiber or you don't have other kind of proper connections. Even in, for instance, the UK, I was working with a friend. Um, we were working from his house in Surrey on some uh, stuff, some projects. And uh, yeah, we had to use, of course, an online-based uh, marketing tool in Fusionsoft. And it was astonishing. The tool actually went qu worked quite well considering that it was just a 2 mbit connection, which was <laughs> rather appalling when I compared at home. Here I've got uh, a 100 mbit fiber, and that's that's a nice speed. But if you move, for instance, outside of Lund of Munich, for instance, you, have, you haven't even got one mbit. It's just appalling. And the thing is, I, one of my companies are outside of Munich, at the beginning, the internet connection was so expensive and so bad that uh, each time sending an an email out it meant that i would got so annoyed of it that i used foul language because I, it just angered me that i can't properly send this email and doesn't even have any attachments and then we moved inside with our business into the city and we got for a tenth of price we got a internet connection that was super fast <laughs> and i didn't need to use any foul language just to get my annoyance out it was just super easy and and uh, even now in Sweden, for instance, there are even islands where you get 750 Mbit. And it's crazy to think, what? On a small island? Wow. And Elon Musk's system is as well uh, being advertised now between 50 and 150 Mbit, which is in some places in the countryside. Anywhere in Europe, you'd be thankful. I mean, it's not even, not even in the countryside. If you think about older cities, it's really hard to run fiber optic cable under them without, 
without excavating historical buildings like in Rome or Lisbon. Hmm. And there, I, I bought an apartment in Lisbon in the charming old neighborhood built by the Moors, Alfama. Hmm. And what I didn't realize is that there's no fiber optic in Alfama. Everyone is just using the 4G Vodafone network. <laughs> yeah. And if you're trying to do a, you know, I, I don't know, I was there with my girlfriend for several months, and it's like if I was doing conference calls and she was watching a movie and every one of our neighbors was watching a movie, the 4G network would just be, or 5G network even, right, would be completely overloaded. Yeah, and when you think of it, uh, we are still in Europe, still not really in the 5G. Uh, all the different um, providers, whether it's British Telecom, Telefonica, Deutsche Telekom, and so on, they're all offering now uh, Huawei 5G routers. But uh, yeah, most locations don't really have the 5G availability. So yeah, and, and in the end, 5G will or satellite like Starlink will be the proper alternative because, for instance, uh, when they started putting the fiber cables in our city here, they dug up as well the road in front of my house, and it's just it's just terribly slow. It doesn't make really sense to do put fiber cable even yeah, in the, the cost of, the cost per kilometer in already developed areas is really expensive if you factor in. Mm. in inefficiencies of public contract bidding processes and things like that, then you you end up with uh, an abysmal figure. In, in, in San Francisco, people are kind of shocked because all of the utility cables and power cables are above ground. And, mm. and if you have an earthquake, like the last earthquake that was in San Francisco, most of the property damage was not from the earthquake, it was from the fires when the electrical cables fell over. Um, and so they, and they have really corrupt public sector unions for a lot of the city construction. So the last time they devoted billions of dollars to under moving the utilities underground, mm -hmm. they, they spent it, the entire project for like, I was supposed to cover, you know, many square kilometers of the city. They spent the entire budget on just doing the, Utilities moving them underground in, in one street, Octavia Boulevard. <laughs> and then they ran out of money and they stopped doing it. Yeah, that's that's the problem with bureaucracy and all these uh, parties with severe con with conflict of interest and that. Um, so, yeah. so I would I, I would put my bet on the private sector giving giving better internet access even within cities. It's not even just a question of uh the um the question of rural areas is just like extending fiber optic lines all over the city and making that infrastructure stable like i don't think the state in many cases i don't know if there's the political willingness to make the long-term capital expenditure to invest in that infrastructure it's going to have to come from the top and in the u.s i don't think that sort of transformation of infrastructure is, is going to be executed um, anytime soon. Like, I don't think we'll get the money to transform, you know, uh, all of America into having fiber optic cables. I think it's sooner that Starlink becomes viable than the U.S. invests in fiber optic.
Yeah, same will be as well in Europe as well, because there are so many uh, regions where are underdeveloped or they, they put the, the cables under the earth and they don't, they don't work properly or uh, they're having problems. For instance, one area south of the place where a friend of mine lives, they have uh, brand new fiber cables for, I think, at least two days, nothing worked. All the different phone providers and cable providers, they couldn't figure out what was, wasn't working. The whole entire area, which is uh, huge, everybody wasn't with phone, wasn't with internet connection, anything. And of course, since we don't use anymore uh, the analog cables and, and copper cables, we are all on VoIP once the internet breaks down then you haven't got anything. <laughs> you are not reachable. And if the cell phone breaks down as well, well, uh, it's a bit unusual in such a developed country to be offline in that way. Um, but that puts actually an interesting thing when we look at it, how companies can really go and uh, really get themselves in front of the eyes of the potential buyers, potential clients, and as well investors. As you said before, it's well using tools like podcasts, articles, and as well, of course, platforms like Twitter and that. We've uh, we've had we've had uh, investors reach out to us that just see our content on Twitter and see other investors talking about our product on Twitter. Yeah, and that's that's a good thing because I think Twitter has. Uh, quite an opportunity to offer which is very different to what for instance you experience on facebook even linkedin doesn't isn't as informative linkedin is a bit it's becoming the facebook of business it's spammy a bit i don't like it very much anymore uh, yeah i mean that bears out with our statistics we we'd have to invest a lot into publishing content that is low quality uh, to build an audience on LinkedIn, uh, whereas on Twitter, you can actually build an audience through just publishing really quality content and making exploratory Twitter threads that are informative. Yeah, and that's that's a better benefit for the people. It sounds good. I've got to get going in a minute. It was great to, great to chat with you about... Um, how to build a company in 2021. I think the landscape has changed from when I first started thinking about building a company and working in startups more than a decade ago. Yeah, definitely. Um, if people want to contact you, how can they reach out and get in contact with you? It, well, if you're thinking of starting a company, um, check out what we're building at CapBase. It's capbase.com. And uh, we can incorporate your company in the U.S. and Delaware, get a bank account, set up your board, set up your employee stock plan uh, in less than five days and all for less than $1,000. And you never have to even set foot in America to incorporate a company there. That's great. So it was awesome having you here. And I'm sure in future we'll be talking about other similar topics. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.
I hope you enjoy today's episode of The Growth Zone with Christian Barge. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review or rating here on iTunes or on podchaser.com. If you found the content helpful, then share it on social media. I would like to invite you to follow our show so that you don't miss the upcoming interviews with leaders in the market. Simply visit the website follow.prmediareach.com. I will be adding the link also to the description of this episode so that you just need to click on that link. For those of you who are listening and signing up to follow the show, I have reserved a free copy of the ultimate guide on content marketing. This is the strategy that got me top corporate clients like McDonald's, Linde, Hewlett-Packard, Deutsche Bank, Volvo and many others. That strategy has been working for over 10 years. It also got me contacts with police, transport authorities, military and several universities and even leading research institutes. For sure, it also worked wonders as it got me many small, medium-sized entrepreneurs and enterprises as clients. And that even included international clients from all around the world. The link to sign up for our free broadcasting service and the guide is follow.prmediareach.com That will give you access to the most recent version of my ultimate guide on content marketing. You can follow me as well on Twitter by using the Twitter handle CAP Barge. That's spelled Charlie Alpha, Papa, Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Tango, Sierra, Charlie, Hotel. Yes, that is C-A-P, Barge. Charlie, Alpha, Papa, Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Tango, Sierra, Charlie, Hotel.